We'll look this morning at Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 through 47. We'll read the first part, 27 through 31, and then we will skip on down and finish out the chapter. This is God's Word. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall, to the dung gate. We'll skip down to verse 38, 32 through 37 are those who were a part of that first choir. Picking up in verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and then skipping down to verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Mysiah, Miniamim, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohan, Malkijah, Alam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks for your inerrant, inspired word that these are not the opinions of men, yet they were carried along by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to give to us all that we stand in need of. And so we ask this morning, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Nehemiah chapter 6, I know we're going back a few chapters, but in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, what we learn there is the wall that which they had been working on was completed. And since that completion of the wall, we've heard much about the people and their response. They've read for some time the word of God at long length. They've confessed their sins together. They've made a firm commitment or even a covenant, you might say, as the people before God. 
Our text this morning is a little interesting. We're not quite sure. Did this happen immediately after six, chapter 6, verse 15? Is it speaking in a chronological order, or is it speaking outside of that? What we understand is Nehemiah takes over the reins here. He's no longer entrusting it to a scribe. You can kind of see him talking in the first person. That's where you get it in verse uh, 38, when he says, or um, excuse me, 31. And what you have is Nehemiah giving you, this is the response of the people. And so we might not be sure chronologically when all this happened, but there's no doubt the purpose of what Nehemiah is writing here. Look at what he says in verse 27. It's very clear. He begins with, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. There's a celebration, a worship service, you might say. It's the first thing we come across. And so what I want you to know this morning is worship matters. Worship matters, and I only have two points. The work of worship and worship works. And so look with me first at the work of worship. We see it right away. Nehemiah says, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. That word dedication there, you might be interested to know, the Hebrew there is closely related to the word Hanukkah. And I'm sure you've heard that term before. That is a Jewish celebration that's often close in ties with Christmas. It has nothing to do with Christmas, but it is in close ties to it. They're celebrating the rededication of the second temple, uh, the Maccabean revolt and its success. They're regaining Jerusalem. And so this is not at the same time, but what we're to understand is, well, the Jewish people were clear on what it means to celebrate a celebration of dedication, you might say. And so what Nehemiah begins with, he says, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, what does he want you to know? This is not the people's wall. This is God's wall. That's why they're dedicating it. This is not the wall of a man. This is the wall of God. It's meant to be used for his purposes his glory, his praise, his end. It's kind of that picture, if you remember the people of God in Deuteronomy, when Moses is talking to them, when you prepare to enter into the promised land, he says in Deuteronomy 8, do not forget. He says it over and over. And what is he telling the people? Do not forget who brought you here. Do not forget who took care of you in the wilderness. Do not forget who protected you in the wilderness. Do not forget who provides, who loves, who furnishes you with everything that you need. It's a reminder. This is not the strategy of man. This is the work of God. And so we get this idea of dedication. And that's not a strange word to you. I'm sure if you did any kind of investigation, perhaps the university that you went to, or seminary, we, we often hear there's a, uh, well, there's a chair. This is the chair dedicated in honor of such and such professor or the work that they did. Or maybe there's buildings. It's dedicated in the memory of bridges, roads, all kinds of things. And in fact, uh, there's, there's awards given to even athletes. It's, it's in response. It's, it's a reminder of who has gone before, what great things that they had done. 
And so what are the people of God doing here? They're dedicating a wall, a city. What they're trying to say is it's not so much a brick that they're dedicating to God. It's, it's everything in which of who they are. It's all of their being. And if you've been with us, you've, you've heard Pastor Smith talk about it just a couple weeks ago. What is it that the people of God are having on their minds? What are they focusing on? What are they dedicating? Well, it's the temple of God. And that's a question for you and I to ask, isn't it? What is the temple of God? Where do we understand it? What's its purpose? The, the presence and rule and reign of God. And Paul's going to tell you, because of Christ, where is the temple of God? You. You who put your faith in Christ. It is Christ who puts his spirit in you and you become the people, the temple of God. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? What Nehemiah is saying the people are doing, we're gonna dedicate the wall. We are dedicating everything of who we are to God. It's a, it's a first step in what it means to worship, isn't it? They're recognizing it's not their work, it's, well, it's the work of God. When we talk about the work of worship, it has everything to do with all of who you are, not just the timing of which you come to church. It's your entire person. It's your entire being. It's not an accident. That's what Nehemiah continues to say, isn't it? This is a very intentional service. It was not an afterthought. Look in verse, the latter half of verse 27 and 28. Uh, he says, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness. Verse 28, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem. What is it that they're saying? This is an intentional service. We have to plan for this. We have to prepare for what it means to worship God. It's, it's not an accident. It doesn't just happen randomly. It took great care and preparation because the point of worship isn't so much the program of it. It's the person of it. They recognize who it is that they are coming to worship, and that is God himself. And so we ask, well, then who are we here to worship this morning? And how has he called us to worship? Details matter. Now, you might not get that from my life. If you ask my wife, you would, you would quickly learn details in my life don't matter often because I forget them. But when we talk about the worship of Almighty God, worship matters to him. It's not an afterthought. It's not a careless activity. It's serious. It's sanctifying. And in fact, it's satisfying because that's how you've been made. That's what you've been called to do. And so there is a celebration of joy, but what it takes is preparation. The people go back to their homes, and what is Nehemiah saying? We have to bring them back. We have to go get those who lead in worship. It's not some casual thing. It's not a, well, I just, this is how I feel today. Let's worship like this. This is not a, you have an emotional thought, stand up and share it. None of that seems to matter to them. What they're saying is, Worship takes structure. It matters who leads and how they lead. And it's not because of who they are. It's because of who God is. The people don't act just because they feel like something would be best. 
They honor the Lord. And that's why you see at the end of Nehemiah 12, they're looking at David, they're looking at Solomon, they're going back. How have we worshiped God in the past? It's a corporate worship service. It's not a bunch of individuals who are in the same room doing their own thing. This is not a time to look different. This is not a time to stand out. Dare I say, this is not meant to be some diverse experience. No, the corporate worship of God is not about diversity. It's about unity. Because we are the one body of Christ. And we worship not many gods, but one God. And so Nehemiah says there's a dedication to this working of worship. There's a preparation. There's a planning to worship. And maybe you're starting to think, if all that takes place, it seems a little hard. Worship is hard. And I would say to you, yes, it is. Worship is hard. Do you know why? Because we have sin. The reason why it's hard to worship is because we have sin. And what we need is the removal of sin. Did you see what they did? Nehemiah says, we dedicate the wall. We go and get those who are to lead specifically in worship. And what is it that happens once they get there? Look in verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Worship, it demonstrates our need for purification. We don't just come in any form or fashion. We don't come as we are and stay as we are. There's There's a sense in which we need our sin to be dealt with. And that's what they're saying. They're having to be purified. You can learn about these purification uh, rituals. You can look in Leviticus chapter 16. You can see it in uh, uh, Exodus 19. But there's a very interesting passage in the Old Testament that tells specifically what they would have had to do. And it shows up in Numbers chapter 8. And I don't think it's there by mistake. Listen to what Moses says in Numbers chapter 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them, sprinkle the water of purification upon them and let them go with the razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. There's a sense in which we have to have a right form of purification to come into the presence of God. It's the picture of what we saw this morning at baptism that we don't just come how we want to come into worship. We need our sins to be dealt with. It's an issue of holiness. How we come and how we worship matters. And did you hear what God said to the people? These are people who are painfully aware of their inability to enter the presence of God. They know that. You get once a year to enter into the Holy of Holies and much needs to be done to get there. They know they can't just come into the presence of God. But did you hear how they're to be purified? Look again, or here, in case you're not there in your Bibles, what God tells Moses. 
Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. How do we come into worship? You have to be cleansed by another. You see, there's nothing special about the Levites in and of themselves. They didn't just need purification. Someone else had to purify them. Did you hear that language that Moses is giving? Go and purify the Levites. Go and cleanse them. We need to be cleansed by another. Now, we do not have their same purification rituals, although I might suggest part of that ritual should be applied to you and I before we come in here. We call that a shower. Um, But it's the reality that we're asking the question, how can we come into worship? And it's the same answer. You and I must be cleansed by another. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the waters of baptism. Jesus taking on the uncleanliness of man that you might be presented clean before our God. It's a big deal, isn't it? Jesus had very harsh words for people who misunderstood this. You remember that chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, he's he's pronouncing curses over the Pharisees. You remember what he says to them about this issue of cleanliness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. The requirement has not changed from Nehemiah 12, even into Matthew at the end of Revelation. Purification is needed for us to enter into worship. Holiness matters. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, and you come to me for it. You cannot clean yourself. You must be cleansed by another. And so what does this work of worship look like? When we recognize this is meant to be focused on God, there's a dedication of sorts, a celebration. When there's planning and afterthought or intentional thought of what it means to worship. When you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, how does that affect the kind of work that takes place in the air? Well, don't they tell you in a beautiful way? What happens after they've been purified? They rejoice. They sing, they celebrate, they march. There's two choirs. I'm not advocating for two choirs, Jim. I know that you might have only a certain amount of time, but what is Nehemiah telling you? There's there's two large choirs marching. One is marching one direction. The other choir is marching in the opposite direction. And if you read the text closely enough, guess where they find themselves? They meet together at the temple of God. They meet at the house of God in worship. Now, this is, this is a very intense moment for the people. Do you remember where we've been in Nehemiah? Do you remember when he gets that report in Nehemiah chapter one? The walls have been burned. The city is destroyed. We are in despair. We're depressed. We are ashamed people. 
And so he weeps and he prays and he mourns that God would do something. And and then he gets a vision and he's going to stir the people up. Let's rebuild the city. And then you get to Nehemiah chapter 4. They're starting on the walls. What does Tobiah, the one of the opposers, say? He says, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down the stone wall. They're being mocked. They were in despair and depressed, and, and now they're working, and as soon as they work, what happens? They're mocked. Why would you do this? Now, many of you are handy in here. I know because I often ask you for help because we have a saying in our house. When I work on a project, it is functional but flawed. And so that's not what they're saying. That's not the image that's being presented to us, is it? What is Tobiah telling the people? Go ahead and give it your best shot. A little fox, a cat, gets up on the wall. And it's going to crumble. It's going to fall. Something so insignificant, something so light will destroy it. But what do we have in Nehemiah chapter 12? We have armies on top of the wall singing loudly with joy. There could not be a more opposite picture of what has been taking place in this book. Or maybe we should say there could not be a better fulfillment of what God has been doing in the people's lives. They're marching up and down the wall. It's not only not falling, it's, it's upholding them. It's, it's strengthening them. It's sending them forth. And isn't that the pattern of your life? When you and I give great attention to what it means to worship, it's not only that we do not fall. What does God do? He upholds you, he strengthens you, he sends you forth with great power. It's a challenging work, isn't it? How little attention we often give to Sunday mornings. And you could quickly say, but Danny, this kind of sounds a little bit like a special service. Friends, this is not a special service because of what has been accomplished or the structure in which they've built. You know why it's special? Because God is returning to the presence of his people. He's coming back. And when God brings himself into the presence of his people, it promotes and provokes worship. You and I should give far more careful attention to what it means to come into this hour and worship. If you're new here this morning, this is a, you might say, a foundational text for us. We are not a flashy group. We lack all of what you might call entertainment and seeker sensitivity. But that's not the point. You don't come here because you want to be entertained. In fact, could I be as bold to say to you this morning? You don't come here to get anything. You come here to worship. Worship is a verb. I'm not an English major, but I do understand here, when we talk about worshiping God, you are not the object. You're not the subject. 
God is. And we come not to be entertained, not to be seeker sensitive, not to feel better, not to necessarily receive anything. We have come because we want to work at worshiping God. I'm not saying you won't receive anything. I'm saying that cannot be your primary objective because that's not what church is for. Church worship is for God and it matters. That's why we have the songs that we have, the instruments that we have. We call it intelligent praise. We're not saying your feelings don't matter, but your feelings often conform to that which is true. We want factual, truthful, intelligent praise. We're not anti what you might say contemporary music. But one thing that you would note is often it fails to tell you what is really true. And those who write it often fall away from the faith. And so we're not here because we want you to think better of us up here. I learned that the hard way. When COVID hit and we had to do some work, many of you let me know that you heard me singing through the live stream. And I know what that sounded like. So you know, we're not flashy. We might be the opposite of that. You're here in spite of some of us. But that's what he's saying here. We are here to work at the worship of Almighty God. We're not saying we need a plain worship. We're not saying we need a boring worship. Because when you work at worship, you know what happens? It leads to worship working. And that's really our second point. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Maybe you kind of stopped. You, you, you heard us read the verse and you thought, that can't be. That sounds a little good to be true. Did you hear what Nehemiah said in verse 43? And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Do, do you see what's happening here? You and I cannot use that ridiculous line that says Presbyterians don't have emotional worship. You can't say we don't care about what we sing or how we sing because Nehemiah is saying orderly worship doesn't mean boring worship. Liturgy doesn't mean there's a lack of passion. He's saying when you're working at the worship of God, he will make you rejoice. It works. It works. There's much encouragement. Psalm 98.1, sing to the Lord, what? A new song, because he has done marvelous things. You know why that verse matters so much to you? A man named Isaac Watt, he wrote a hymn off of that verse. You know what hymn he wrote? Joy to the world. Joy to the world. You see, when we work at worship, worship works. Knowing truth and singing truth, it allows us to, to, to be free in our expression of joy. We worship in light of truth rather than our feelings. James Montgomery Boyce, he says uniquely, he says that Christians, you alone have this privilege. There's no other world religion, he's arguing, that can do this. 
you have every reason to worship because you have a God who hears and a God who answers. What he has done, it's great things. It's a, it's a grand reminder that we come in here because we have hope in our worship. What is perishable, Paul will say, will become imperishable. You worship now and you worship in light of what is to come, the crown of righteousness. The psalmist says what the, the cities of God will be made glad. And you and I get a foretaste of that every Lord's day when we come in here. When we give ourselves to this work, it works and it's beautiful because it's not conditional. It's not circumstantial. You can't look at them and say, things just seem to be going right for you. Do you remember what they were saying in Nehemiah chapter nine? They're still slaves. They're not even a free people. They are still under the rule and reign of Persia. And yet, they are so joyful. They are so joyful in their worship. How do you get that? You heard the word earlier. We call it covenant. Because you trust in the promise of God. You know, at the end of the Psalter, the last five Psalms, they're, they're called Hallel Psalms. The reason why they're called Hallel Psalms is it begins and ends with praise. But there's an interesting one. In Psalm 146, it, it begins with a, a corporate call that people are to worship God. And, it, and it's almost like an immediate turn. Now you as an individual, you have a responsibility to worship. And so you, you sense, okay, we're, we're getting here. We're excited. We're ready to worship. And then he says something very interesting. He goes and he says, not to put your trust in princes or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Why is the psalmist doing that? Because they're, they're realistic. They understand that there's a lot of temptation in worship. We're easily distracted. We can easily put our hope and trust in something else instead of God. But when we work at worship, worship works, and it's unbelievable that God would make us to rejoice, that women, children, men, and all of those around them, far away. What a powerful statement. But the people of God worshiped so powerfully, not just their own church, but the neighbors heard them. You ever do that? Are you that person who sings in the car until you get to a red light? And then you stop because people see what you're doing. What does it mean to worship without shame and say, I hope the ends of the earth hear us because of who it is that we worship. When Meredith and I were living in Columbia, South Carolina, there was a, a sermon. I, I don't remember the text or even remember a whole lot about the sermon. It was more on me than it was the preacher, but he, he had this line in there that overwhelmed me. He talked about heaven and he said, make no mistake, there will be no whispers of joy in heaven, but only shout. Is that you when you come into church? A practice of what it means to be in the presence of God for all eternity. Are we just whispering these little songs? Or are we shouting with joy because he's made us to rejoice? Five times you see the word joy in this verse. In verse 43, it's a powerful reminder. 
we have come to worship God. And did you see what happened when they did that? There was an overflow. There was an overflow. There, there became a problem, the best kind of problem. We have so many, so much financial giving. We need storerooms. We need organization to our budget. There, there's been a generosity. There's a, there's a willing, there's a faithful, there's a thankful giving. And, and what are we to do? We, we've got to organize our budget because we have so much money. That's you. We have seen that reality here at this church. Your generosity. What a privilege to be in the house of God with people who understand who he is and therefore give generously. You entrust your tithes and offerings to him that he would use it. It, You don't see them sitting there admiring how much money, how many contributions, the sacrifices that they got. They see they praise, and they use. That's the best part about being a part of a church. We're not here to have big savings accounts. We love spending accounts because we want to see the gospel go forth. And that's what you're looking at. No, this is not Stewardship Sunday, although every Sunday is Stewardship Sunday. It is a privilege to say when we faithfully work at the worship of God, worship work. How does that play itself out? Well, I think one application, worship is a response to thanksgiving. You see what God has done and you respond with thanksgiving. But I think bigger than that, it's what the people do. They worship with their whole life. They worship with their whole life. It It would have changed what they said, their conversations, how they texted amongst each other, their emails, their social media posting. It changed how they conversed with each other. It changed what they saw. When we worship with our whole life, our spiritual act of worship, it changes what we look at on the internet. It changes what we look at on TV. It changes all of what we see. It changes what we spend. On what, how much, where? When we dedicate our whole life to the Lord, it affects every bit of us. And it means we get to worship with joy. And do you know why? Because when you read Nehemiah 12, and then you look at what your life is like in church, there's elements that are missing. You read this and you think, well, we don't do that, Danny. And the answer is, you're right, we don't. Do you know why? Because Hebrews tells you we have better worship. Christ has fulfilled all of these things. We have a better worship. And you come in here and you taste the future glories of heaven. It's a practice for heaven. We have a better covenant, a better priest, a better prophet, a better king, because we have Christ. And so we worship in response to what he's done. And yet we worship with a foretaste of what is to come, and that is glory. And so my prayer is that we would be a church that says worship matters. It matters what we do Monday through Saturday because we don't just stumble in here on Sunday. We come in with a mindset that says, I want to work at what it means to praise God. 
And when we do, God makes us to rejoice. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we marvel at the fact that it's not programs that promote worship, but it is your presence. That we have every reason to sing to you a new song with a refreshed and new perspective because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to reconcile a people to himself, that for all eternity, we would be with our God. And so, Lord, we would ask, even as it has been prayed earlier today, we're grateful for the history of this church, and yet we want to say, continue such a history, that we would be faithful in our worship, faithful in our teaching, our preaching, our praying, our singing. We want to say to you, details matter because you matter. And so may this be a time not that we primarily think of ourselves, but rather we see Christ Jesus. And therefore you make us to rejoice as we would look full into his wonderful face. So help us, O Lord, that we would have a life fully dedicated unto you. It affects every bit of who we are. That we would respond with thanksgiving. We would celebrate with joy. We pray in Jesus' name.